Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and webcast prepared by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico Monterrey. My name is Jose Pepe Escamilla, and I'm the Associate Director of the Institute for the Future of Education. And today we have a very fr fine friend uh, in our podcast, uh, Paul LeBlanc, who is the president of the University of Southern New Hampshire. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Pepe. It's good to be back in Monterey with you. Thanks. So you recently uh, uh, launched uh, a new book called um, Students First, Equity, Access and Opportunity in, in Higher Education. Tell me what do you think that this book was necessary? It's a distillation of work that I've been doing for a long time, Pepe. It's, um, I, I've been, you know, I was an immigrant into the United States. My parents had eighth grade educations. My father was a day laborer. My mother worked in a factory until she was in her 70s. So I was the first in my family to go to university. It changed my life. And um, it was affordable. It was high quality. And it allowed me, it unlocked opportunity for me. And my worry is that in the United States, at least, that, that possibility is less and less available. Um, higher education in the United States is increasingly expensive. It's an, students are taking on enormous amounts of debt, $1.7 trillion of student debt. That's more debt than any other kind of debt in America, except home mortgages, more than credit card, automobile, everything. Um, and also, we see our system failing about 45% of the students who start. So we have about 40 million Americans who have some college credits, no degree, and now they have debt as well, they've borrowed. So it's worse than if they had not gone at all. And, and I've really been haunted by the ways in which, our, which higher ed, which for me was really part of social mobility, um, it created such opportunity, as I said. Now for a lot of people, higher education is seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution. There's a resentment about higher education. We don't, a lot of Americans don't trust it. They don't trust the return on investment. Um, they don't, like, they just can't afford it, right? They're making sacrifices. So my book was an attempt to look at how we can rethink the system so that it once again serves the purpose that it long did in America, which was to create opportunity for people, to give them a lift in their life. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And what's, uh, What's the proposal? What do, you, what do you propose to achieve that goal that was sure. used to be uh, this dream of uh, yeah. so I social think, mobility? Um, there, there are a couple of key parts of this. And I, first of all, I want to say universities are asked to do many things. So it's not about research. We need universities like Tech Millennia, uh, Tech de Monterey to do, to do important research for our society, to create new knowledge. This is really about the mission of universities to teach and to and to serve the population at large and 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 part of it so to go to your question i argue that we have now built a whole industry on the credit hour and on time and time is a terrible measure of actual learning if you think about it it tells you know the credit hour is very good at telling us how long someone sat in the classroom it's not very good at telling us what they actually learned and in fact the way we assess students in higher education is in many disciplines, not very effective. So I argue for an alternative to time. I argue for competencies or skills-based education in which we can allow students to go as fast or as slow as they need, right? So we're not tied to time any longer, but we actually 
raise our standards in terms of what they can actually do. And that has huge implications because right now in our system, time is fixed. Students come for a certain term, a certain year, and learning is variable. They get A's, they get B's, they get C's, et cetera. What I'd like to do is see that flipped. I would like to see the learning to be non-negotiable and time to be the variable. And when we can start to put a focus on the outcomes, when we can actually measure what students learn, we can get much more innovative about all the models that get them there. So part of what my book does is it showcases really interesting institutions like Western Governors University and, and others that, um, that are using new models that lower the cost, can allow students to go faster, can recognize what students already know, and are actually better measures of learning. There are people that argue that um, competency-based learning or competency-based education is more, um, I would say, labor-intensive uh, from the part of the teacher, and that implies uh, more cost. How do you achieve uh, this? Yeah, so it, it, it can, right, depending on the way you build the model. But what I, what I believe is that if we can move towards competency-based models, we can get much more creative in the way we use our faculty. We use more project-based or real-world learning. We can use more peer-to-peer -peer learning. So the faculty member no longer has to be the sole um, vessel for learning. The reality is faculty can now become curators or orchestrators of learning, and we can use much more stronger assessments to make sure that students are learning, and that gives, gives us a lot of flexibility. So, for example, Western Governors University is only $6,000 a year. Our competency-based programs are similarly priced. We've actually been able to lower the cost of education in those models. But it means you, you have to dramatically rethink the inputs. So in a model, in our long traditional model that we have today, because we don't have a focus on outputs, on skills and competencies of what students can actually do, we actually make massive investments on inputs, like how many PhDs on the faculty, um, on our facilities, uh, none of those tell you actually what you're producing on the other end. So my argument has long been, if you shift from a focus on inputs to actually measuring your outputs, you can get very creative on your educational models, on your delivery models. Mm -hmm. Very well. Uh, also in your recent uh, published book, uh, you talk about student-centric learning. And uh, um, we have talked been talking about student-centric learning, but I don't think that we have done a lot of that mm. in general, particularly in, in, uh, uh, in distance learning, uh, online learning, it seems to be rather uh, uh, a challenge, uh, even a bigger challenge than face-to-face. -face. How do you achieve the student-centric student learning uh, on distance learning? Yeah, so let's be clear what I think happens for most of higher education today that it is a one-size-fits-all model. That is, if you or I enroll in the same university and we study the same major, we will have largely the same experience. We will be in similar courses together. You and I will see each other semester after semester. And look, we'll have some electives. We'll do a little bit of difference, but mostly we are sort of in, the, in a sort of the same track. But imagine um, a model in which we can know so much more about students. And I can say, Pepe, you actually really have an aptitude for these things. I have a model that will allow you to get through those faster. Paul, you actually struggle a little bit more with that. I'm going to put you in a more supportive, structured environment. Um, Pepe, you have um, fewer financial resources. We're going to put you in some lower cost models that will reduce the amount of spending you'll have to do. Paul, you actually have a little bit more privilege or, or means 
you can do these sorts. So we start to actually curate and build learning. And now with learning science and cognitive science, we know so much more about how you learn. So we can start to adjust that, you know, Pepe's really sort of, he's a kinetic learner, he's a hands-on learner. If I put him in a project, he'll actually flourish because that's, he, that's how his mind works best. Paul's actually sort of an abstract, he, he's a textual learner. He, you know, reading for him is the kind of way he likes to learn best, maybe visual learning. So, so we're really interested in building models that understand where, stu where students are. Um, you might have worked in industry for five years. Can we measure through prior learning assessment and get you some credits already? So that everyone has a curated learning pathway that's really well-suited for them. And the well-suited part of this is important because it's not just the, the question of how do you best learn, what kind of classes or instruction do you best sort of respond to, but it's also your life circumstances. Um, and, and, and most of higher education just doesn't care about that. We never ask that question. And I, and I, and I think we, you know, this is, this is the future. If you think about this, Pepe, we talk about more personalized medicine, right? We talk about the ability to personalize our choices in all kinds of venues in our life but education has been very slow to get there. And I think this is, I think we're on the cusp of that today. Can I give you one example? We're working right now with Google, we're just announcing um, what they're calling a PLA moonshot, a prior learning assessment moonshot. Working with Google to use really machine learning to be able to look at your background, the previous jobs you've had, the kinds of things you do, to see if we can discern what competencies or skills you already possess and assign credit to them. That would, be, that would be a model that allows us to really adjust to you as an individual. That sounds very interesting. I was uh, having a conversation with a, a neuroscience education scientific uh, yeah. last week, and she said that uh, she has found that emotions are a very important component of learning, and, uh, and that, um, that that component uh, should be taken into account uh, because when you really deal with emotions, uh, everything uh, works better in the, in the brain. Uh, so uh, I, I imagine that you have some strategies to work uh, in, in, uh, in creating this, um, I would say, support network uh, for the learning of the students also. Yeah, and the part that it's, you know, we so often want to talk about curriculum and we want to talk about the structure of academic programs. But I think probably the single most important part in this mix is exactly what you said, which is, can we know the student as a full human being? Do we know them holistically? So in your, you know, I love small colleges. And part of what I like about small colleges, ironically, for someone who has 180,000 students, but what I like about small colleges is that there's a greater likelihood that a professor or staff person will actually know you, right? Who actually really cares about you. And the thing that the thing that's impactful there is not just simply that they know you, it's that you feel like you matter. You feel like you matter to somebody. And it's in that mattering that you start to engage learners. So there's a wonderful sociologist at Brown named Greg Elliott who writes about mattering. And he writes about, for example, the ways that um, in very elite universities, a kid from the working class, like my background, they arrive and, and even though the school might make tuition possible for them, on day one, there are a million little signals that say to them, you don't really belong here. You don't really matter to us. And it's very hard for that learner to thrive in an environment where they feel like they don't matter, to your point. So in our big model, our online model, right, was 180,000 students, so first or second largest university in the United States. 
The critical piece for us is the relationship of our academic advisors with our individual student. It's how we get at this question of their emotions. And those academic advisors, I often say, they're more like life coaches, right? They work with those students. So, you know, our online student is 30 years old. They have a couple of kids. They have a full-time job. And now they're coming back to finish their college degree. And you're online. It can feel very isolated. You're not seeing a lot of other students in class, in a physical classroom. But that advisor who's checking in on you, who's saying, hey, baby, how are you? And, and is everything going okay? And let me get you set up for your next class. And on the phone, you're saying, God, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be trying. This is too hard. So, oh, why do you say that? Now we have this conversation. And you give me some faith and some confidence again. This is really critical to our success, actually. So for all of the, all of the conversations that I end up having about innovation and technology, I always come back and say, it's actually the human factors that are most important. Mm -hmm. We show you... Um High tech, high touch. Yeah. We need both. Yeah, and I think it's a really lovely phrase because when I describe our advisors and how important they are, we use a lot of technology to help them do their job better. So we have a very robust CRM. We have a very large data analytics team. We have 70 people doing data analytics in the US and in India for us. We are monitoring every student 24 seven. We know when you're struggling in your classes, sometimes we see your grades before you do. So when that advisor comes in in the morning, they open up their, their um, computer and they now say, oh, wait a minute, I need to check in with Pepe. He struggled on two exams last week or he struggled in these assignments. I got to find out what's going on. So they're not waiting for you to get in trouble. They're calling you proactively. Pepe, what's, what's happening uh, in class? It seems like you have a little struggle. And you say, oh my God, I had a terrible week. My children were sick. My work was crazy. I'll get back. I'm good. Like, I'll get back on track. So we're like, okay, he's good. But some, you might say instead, Oh, I don't know if I should do this. I'm thinking of dropping out. It's in that moment that that conversation can be critical to keeping you engaged and successful, getting you more resources. Oh, Pepe, did you, I didn't realize you were struggling with your writing. Let me connect you with a writing tutor, right? And now I'm starting to point resources to you. And that, again, is this notion of it's one of the ways we get at um, a personalized learning experience. You have someone who's actually adjusting the resources of the university, not waiting for you to go find them. When, when, when I hear you saying this, I, I wonder why don't, doesn't every university in the world do that? It's, uh, uh. Yeah, so for, in part because we, so, we get so consumed with um, the sort of design of our product, if I can use that phrase. In fact, let me open up the aperture and get at this question in a little slightly different way. You know, it's some, often said that all organizations have to be good at three things. They have to be good at, at operations, right? Everything works well, your policies work well, your systems work well. Um, they have to be good at uh, product, so the design of what they do, and they have to be good at people. And if you think about Amazon, but, but the old saying is like, you have to be good at all three, but everyone plants their flag in one as their primary focus. So Amazon's all about, we're gonna be great at operations. We're just gonna be amazing at operations. Apple would say, we're going to be amazing at product. We build amazing, you know, beautiful design. Everyone loves Apple products because of their, of their design. And if you're a Nordstrom's or the Ritz-Carlton, you would say, we're going to plant our flag on people. We're going to give you an amazing customer experience. And higher education, if I can use the analogy here, really, we spend a lot of time on product. We'll talk about curriculum all day long. We'll talk about the design of programs all day long. Um, 
We spend enormous resources on the faculty and the design of and the support of and the physical facilities around the classroom. Student services is sort of a secondary thing. It's not the highest status in the place. These are not the jobs we pay the most for. We kind of let the student affairs staff think about that. It's sort of a secondary, right? We don't plant our flag on people, honestly. Um, in our model, we would say we need our academic program to be very well designed. It's got to deliver what students need from it. Um, but our primary focus is actually going to be on the human factor. And that's different than most of higher education. If, if I were to ask most of my colleagues where they spend more of their time, they spend much more of their time on questions of the programs, product, right, programs, and, and their curriculum and what people need, and do I need two more faculty to deliver this engineering program, and do we need this new technology because that's right, and, and they leave, the, they leave the, the, student, the human being, they leave that to the dean of students. And do you think that higher education should look more at people than what they do. Do you think that's uh, I think a it's actually, I, it's actually um, this is sound like I'm trying to sort of pitch a new book, but it might, I have a book, a second book coming out next year. And that book um, is asking the question, why do large scale systems and organizations so often actually ignore and even dehumanize the very people they're meant to serve? So anyone who has had an encounter with a large healthcare system has, has experienced dehumanization. I'm made to wait, my doctor doesn't talk to me, there's no respect, I'm lumped in, right? Like, we've all had that experience. Um, I would argue that much of our K-12 system in America dehumanizes students. It doesn't recognize their creativity, it puts everyone on a conveyor belt. Um, in poor communities, uh, it's often quite terrible. Criminal justice system doesn't even pretend to dehumanize. And I think higher education often dehumanizes in some ways. Um, and so my book is really looking at this question of how do we rehumanize our systems? How do we rehumanize our universities? And, and I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people. I've interviewed people who work with refugees at the UN. I've worked with people who are reinventing healthcare systems. Um, I've uh, interviewed people who deal with mental health and substance abuse treatment. And all of them, the, the key to fixing those systems is putting people back at the heart of things. I talked to a guy who did an amazing job. He took the University of Utah healthcare system from one of the poorest performing healthcare systems in terms of patient satisfaction to number one in the country. Completely flipped it. And, and when I asked him, and, he, and they did lots of things to get there, which we could talk about. But at the heart of it, when I said, what did patients want that they weren't getting and that you gave them? And he said, they wanted to be respected. They wanted to be heard. They want their doctor to talk to them like a human being, not talk past them, right? They want them to take an extra few minutes to listen. And we know this, right? There's research that shows when physicians spend even 10 or 15 minutes more with a patient, that um, malpractice lawsuits go down, even when the doctor makes a mistake. But what happens then? The patient's like, well, I know, Dr. Smo, he's a good guy. Like, everyone makes mistakes. That can happen. Like, no, I don't want to sue him, right? So you might say, well, wait a minute. There's so much pressure on the healthcare system. If you just keep adding 10 and 15 minutes to every patient, your operations, right, the operations are going to go away. But there are interesting healthcare systems saying, no, we, we can switch this up, actually. So rather than the doctor spending more than, there's one wonderful healthcare system in which they use healthcare coaches. So they actually reduce the amount of time with the doctor, not more, less, 
but they increase the amount of time with a healthcare coach. So when the doctor says, hey, Pepe, we've got we to work on your diet, like your borderline diabetes here. We've got to look at your sugar. I want you to cut down on your salt, et cetera. Okay, doctor, leaves. You know what happens most of the time? Nothing. That patient comes back six months later and they have all the same problems. But with the healthcare coach, doctor leaves, not healthcare coach, says, all right, Pepe, who does the shopping in your household? Well, you know, I don't get around very well, so my, my niece picks me up groceries every week. What does she buy you? Let's go down the list. Now let's meet, let's make out, let's get her on the phone. Let me like, right? And that healthcare coach works with you. They've been, and this system has driven down the cost of patient care on an annual basis in dramatic ways. What do they do? More human time, less of the expense of clinical time. It sounds counterintuitive. Like, is, don't you want more time you, with the doctor? Hmm? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is, is that what you do in the university with the advisors? That, uh, the advisors are the primary the relationship. And, uh... Yes, because you know when a student in online goes from class to class to class, every time they go to the next class, they have a different faculty member. Faculty member who in many instances is meeting them for the first time. They don't really know them. But if your advisor stays with you, as our advisors do through your whole journey, they get to know you. You have a relationship. You know, we have we just did five graduations in November because we were making up from the ones we had to postpone because of the pandemic. And, and then also we do a fall graduation. So we did five graduations on a weekend. Thousands of people flew into Manchester, New Hampshire from around the country and outside the country even. Um, and they've never been. So they did their whole experience online, but now they're coming, going to walk and they're gowned. It was very emotional. You know what the most emotional moment is? When a student meets their advisor for the first time, because they've been together, they know about their kids, they know about, it, it is remarkable. I just, had a, I just had a student reach out to me who has actually had to pause his studies because of cancer treatment. And so he hasn't been in class with us for months and won't be. His advisor still talks to him every week, even though he's not, he's not a student right now, but they have a relationship and she cares about him. And he wrote to me to say, you have no idea how much this meet matters to me. That's that's powerful. That's very, powerful. Very powerful. And look, at most of us did our best learning because someone took an interest in us. I can tell you the names of the faculty who changed my life. What happened? They get to know me as a person. So in this new book that I'm that I'm writing, the first chapter is about mattering because it's the most fundamental human need. We need to feel like we matter to somebody. The second chapter is about aspiration. Because in all of those faculty that were so important to me, and I suspect you would answer the same way, they, don't, they didn't only make me feel like I mattered, they actually challenged me to do better, to lift my sights, to, have, to dream bigger dreams for myself. It was, a, it was a faculty member who said to me, where are you going to graduate school? When I didn't even think I was going to an undergrad, right? I was a working class kid. So it was a big deal for me to get my bachelor's degree. And in my senior year, she said, um, Dr. H Helen Heineman, and I still stay in touch with her. She said, where are you going to graduate school? I said, I haven't thought about graduate school. Like, I didn't even think that was something I was, it wasn't even on my radar screen. And she said, what are you talking about? And she kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck in a sense and said, okay, let's get it. We got it. We're late. We got to work on this. And she's the one that got me into graduate school and then launched me into a career in higher ed. Very interesting. There's some, um, 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 a school in Texas, uh, this, uh, I, I, I don't remember the name of these schools that are a special, uh, well, it's an idea school system. Do you know them? Uh, they, what, what, the pledge that they do is that 
they want every one of their students to go to, um, to the university and finish the university. So after you graduate, they follow up on you yep. during your uh, stay at the university. They make sure that you go to the university and that you continue in the university. Yeah, and there are lots of interesting, innovative high schools now who are doing that. They, they actually stay with their students because that... You know, so often, especially students who come from, like we work with a school in Boston that does remarkable work. And what they found was that their high school graduates, very, the poorest neighborhoods in, in Boston, um, 95%, 90% of their students are um, non-white, um, low income, and they graduate at much higher rates than the public schools in Boston. But they have all of this wraparound care and support for those students. When they send those students off to college, they're failing. Why? Because the colleges don't do that. So they've moved into a model where they offer more of this kind of support for their students even after they've left them. One, one more question. Uh, you, you went from 2,800 students to 135,000? 180,000 now. How many? 180,000. We, we grew by 40,000 during the pandemic. Okay, the pandemic has been, yes, I imagine Just because online. Crazy. Was, was online. <laughs> So uh, my, my question is, uh, did you plan for it or it was a result of putting the students first? Um, or both? You know, I think I'd like to pretend that it was purposely putting the students first. We became very student focused. And the, the ideas that I've shared with you actually are based in that work. So we did it instinctually and not, I can't pretend that we did it with a theory in mind. The theory followed the practice, which sometimes happens in life quite often, as you know. And, I, and we never imagined 180,000. I remember when we had 2,500 students asking the question, you know, is it possible that we could grow this to 10,000? And then at 10,000, in 2012, we had 12,000 students. And, and we were the 50th largest nonprofit provider. So there were for profits like Phoenix, which were very big back then. But for the nonprofits, we're a nonprofit. We were number 50 in the country. Three years later, we were number four. The growth was like a rocket ship. And, and we weren't good at it. We broke everything. We broke IT. We broke human resources. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a mess. Students were well served, but, but it was not pretty. Um, so we had to learn how to scale um, but when we reached, you know, when we reached 35,000 students, I thought, this is it. But, but I think the model works so well for working adults, because that's who online really serves. You know, it's not for the 17-year-old coming out of high school who really needs to be on a campus and wants to grow up in the way a campus lets you grow up. My, you know, my 30-year-old who, you know, served in the military, has two kids and a job, they've, they've done a lot of growing up already. Um, I will say this is interesting, Pepe. In this 180,000, we are now seeing, for the first time, substantial numbers of traditional age students enrolling online. We have 30,000 students who are between 17 and 22. That was mm -hmm. never the case before. And I think, you know, we're still trying to understand what that means, but we think what it means is that for a lot of young students, the there are a lot of students for whom the campus is not the right answer. They need the flexibility of online. Maybe they're helping to take care of their family. Maybe they have to work full time. Um, and 
honestly, this next generation of learners, they just assume that much of their life will be online. They don't make the distinctions. That I think one of the things that will happen after the pandemic is we will stop this old, tired binary of face-to-face -face versus online. That's just, we just need, I think the Institute University of the Future will have to be fluid. They'll have to be flexible. On any given day, a student should be able to choose whatever works best that day. It might be just the weather. I don't feel like walking across in the snow of New Hampshire. It's a snowstorm. I'm going to stay online today. It might be a job. It might be an internship. Maybe I'm playing a sport. And then other times, like, no, I want to talk to my professor after class, and I'd rather do it face-to-face -face than on Zoom. I really like them. I want to, I want to spend you know, a few minutes after class if they'll have coffee with me. So I'm going to go to class today. We, I think we have to imagine universities that are just really flexible. And that, again, is a student-centered idea. That is, let the student choose. Yes. And also it challenges you to think, what do you have to offer in the campus to make the students wake up, take out the pajamas, take a shower, and go to the campus? So uh, it, that, it really is really worth what you have to do on the campus. So you have to design the experience for that. Yeah, I had a um, faculty member once say to me about having students with their laptops open in class. I said, I don't like it because I, I know that they're you know, looking at other things and they're not paying attention. But like, well, how do, what should I do about that? I said, be more interesting than the internet. <laughs> right? Exactly. If you think standing up in front of a class and lecturing is interesting, if you take a look at um, all the research on high impact practices in higher education, the classroom is almost never listed as one of them. What mm -hmm. are the high impact practices? Hands-on learning, internships, study abroad, right? Like mm -hmm. these things that immerse students are the mm -hmm. ways that students tell us that have been most impactful on them. Well, one, one last question. What's in the future for the University of Southern New Hampshire? You know, it, it's interesting. I think we, we are we're looking to expand more internationally. We see enormous need globally, and we just can't build enough traditional campuses to meet that need. Um, I think increasingly, if you don't have a post-secondary credential, maybe not even a degree all the time, I think you, you will struggle in a in a, in a global economy that's technological and interconnected. We are moving, as so many are in the U.S., into micro-credentials. So there are now almost a million micro-credentials on the U.S. higher ed market. It's, it's a mess. There's no clear taxonomy. There's no agreed-upon nomenclature. But what we know is that students want shorter-term, a lot of students want shorter-term learning, laser-focused on skills, tied to an in-demand job. So... Um, and there are lots of examples of this. So Grow with Google was a good example. Micro-credentials, it's not a degree, it's free, it's in IT, and they have lined up hundreds of employers who say, nope, we'll accept one of those Grow with Google certificates in our hiring, you know, for software engineering, UX design, quality assurance, et cetera. So we're looking at, we're working right now to do stackable micro-credentials in healthcare. So the idea is that you can bring somebody in for a first job, low-level job, let's say medical, a certified medical assistant, but you have them, you know, that, so that's three months. So a three month learning experience, it allows them to get a first job. Now they're working in that hospital. Now they can start working on the next micro-credential and, and earn while you learn model. They are bringing in income, helps pay for it, and the hospital starts to upskill their employees. So what we wanna do is guided pathways. And you could imagine that at some point, those pathways will diverge. So I came in as a medical assistant um, and I start building towards, you know, maybe I'm going to be a limited nurse practitioner. But I realized I don't really have an aptitude for the clinical stuff. Like I'm just not 
good at the clinical. So I'll have another pathway. Maybe it'll be into healthcare analytics, maybe into healthcare administration. And if I do have that aptitude, then maybe I have a pathway all the way up to being a nurse and a nurse practitioner. So the idea is you, the old model, so we call it the four and 40 model, the old model where you go to school for four years and then 40 years of a career, that's antiquated, right? We need models that are more flexible and I'd like to think of them as learning ecosystems. And degrees will still be important, universities will still be important, but micro-credentials will be important, stackable pathways will be important. And increasingly we will see new providers of learning that aren't universities. And they're gonna be part of our ecosystem as well. And Coursera is an example of that, edX is an example of that, Grow with Google is an example of that, Salesforce Trailhead is an example of that, and there'll be many, many more. I think it's an exciting time. I think we're, we're, we're moving away from our old industrial model, standardized curriculum, one size fits all, production model of churning out students to a much more flexible, technologically driven, student-centered model that's much more well adapted for the world in which we find ourselves. And a model also where the university becomes the, uh, the partner for learning of the students for the rest of their lives. It's not only a four-year degree. It's a, that's right. It's a, a, yeah, because we're all going to have to keep learning, right? We know that the shelf life of skills right now has shortening, even in engineering. I was talking to the president, a colleague, a friend who heads up a very well-known um, engineering-focused university whose name I won't repeat. But she was saying that her challenge was trying to help her faculty understand that the skills you're teaching in your classes, they're only good for three to five years, probably not five. So we now, and her challenge, her question is, are you sure that our engineering graduates have those macro level skills to be ongoing learners? Because they're gonna have to retool again and again. And even if you don't change your job, your job will change under you. So are you prepared to do that? And you know, it's interesting because uh, IBM talks about T-shaped graduates. They want you to be at graduation. They want you to be deep in a field so you can have that first job and be competent on day one. But they also want those horizontal skills like critical thinking, right? All of those other skills, sometimes we call them soft skills, ironically, because they're hard. But um, I call them power skills. Yeah, yeah, our enduring skills. There's lots of great power skills. I love power skills. Um, but they want you to have those skills so that you can continue to be an active learner. And you're going to think about that ecosystem model again. We will all be dipping in and out of learning. And sometimes you're going to need two hours. Maybe you're a software engineer and there's a new uh, routine in Python. It's like, oh, I just got to master this routine. Like I just read about it last night. I just need the two hours. Maybe it's two days. Maybe it's two weeks. Maybe it's two months. And maybe sometimes it's a two-year degree as well. Degrees will be important, but we have to have that full range. So yes, we will have that. And I think of our campuses then as also being more fluid and flexible tools. So the campus as this kind of fixed entity, I think, has to give way to the campus as a place that students use, like a tool in their toolkit. But that toolkit could include learning out in the workplace. It could be, all, you know, it could be online learning from other places. Like I, you know, our challenge, we're thinking really hard about this with our own, we have a small campus of about 4,000 students. How do we make it a more flexible, almost like a Swiss army knife? Like I use the campus when I need it, but it's not the, it's not the center of gravity anymore. The center of gravity is the student. What, is the, what do I need from the campus right now? And maybe I don't need anything from it for a while. My learning is out in the world in some other Just way. Just um, a part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Part of the ecosystem. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for this uh, interesting uh, talk about the 
uh, what you have accomplished in the University of, of South New Hampshire, you and your team, but also what, what the future of higher education you think it should be. I think it would be very interesting for our audience. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks for having me. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Alejandro Sánchez. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.